Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. We are a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Basically, we help our clients attract, acquire, engage, and retain more patients. If you want to know more about that, you can head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com slash U-P-E. That's rehab, the letter U, practice solutions.com slash U-P-E. But enough about that. Let's dive into what we've got going on this week. This week, we are talking with Sarah Kitlowski, and she is the president and chief operating officer of a company called Omeza. And they're a biotech startup out of Sarasota, Florida. Um, we're going to talk in this episode about value-based healthcare, but value-based healthcare in the space, in the space, and in the realm of wound care and chronic wound care management. So her company uh, developed a uh, basically a, a product that helps heal uh, surgical wounds, skin ulcers, chronic ulcers, that sort of thing. And um, she talks a little bit about innovation in the health space. We talked about some of those canary in the coal mines where, where you see all of the data trending in, let's say, healthcare in general. There are decreased lengths of stay across the boards. There's decreased mortality rates. But there are some areas within the healthcare sector where the, the the trends are going in a different direction. There's increased morbidity, there's increased uh, odds and risks of um, negative outcomes or poor outcomes. And she talks about that being the canary in the coal mine and that's how when you see that trend in the data, that's where you really need to dig in and start finding out why. Why is everybody else or every other sector of healthcare um, experiencing gains while this one area or these several areas are experiencing sometimes losses, right? So um, we talk a little bit about that. We talk about the company Omeza and what they're doing, um, but we spent a, a good deal of time talking about payers and providers, all the stakeholders in healthcare, the patient, and how we can align all of these incentives so that what we end up getting is truly valuable healthcare, healthcare that's valuable to the clinicians or the providers providing the services, to the payers that will be paying for the services, for the policymakers who are you know in charge of regulating and ensuring that everything goes smoothly, and ultimately for the patient who's the end recipient of that service um, in the form of better clinical outcomes and you know decreased mortality rates in the in the case of ulcers and, and chronic wounds like decreasing the risk of amputations and the like so without further ado here is sarah kitlowski talking about value-based wound care well hey sarah welcome to the show how are you good how are you doing today 
I'm doing all right. Uh, before we dive in to all the, the value piece of healthcare, um, for those that might not know you, might not be familiar with your work, kind of just give us a little background about yourself, about the company you're, you, you're working with here, and um, what got you to what you're doing now, and then we'll kind of dive into to wound care and that canary in the coal mine. Sure. So my name is Sarah Fitlowski. Right now, I'm the president and chief operating officer of a biotech company out of Florida um, called Omeza. Omeza is a conjunction of amazing omega-3s. And so this company is specifically focused on um, addressing unresolved issues in chronic wound care and chronic skin care, uh, which is a, a larger issue than, than people really think about. Um, my background is in the uh, intersection between marketing, business, and technology. That's what I was doing for a lot of years before I went back to business school. And it was when I was getting my MBA that I met the founders of this company. And, and what they were looking for was somebody who um, could bring innovation and energy to this product concept, this technology concept. So they scooped me up and I became employee number one about five years ago, and we've since gone through a huge amount of growth, which is where we're at today. Awesome. Cool deal. And um, when we were first talking, before we, we recorded, you were talking about the canary in the coal mine. Um, why don't you explain that concept specifically as it relates to healthcare and value and innovation? Sure. So when you look at uh, the state of a lot of significant conditions. We can talk about chronic disease, for instance. People are living longer than they ever have and are able to live with chronic conditions. So something like breast cancer, which once upon a time had a very high mortality rate, was terrifying. And, and for some people with a death sentence, um, the mortality rate is very low. We have a, a, a lot of people who they can treat as a chronic condition. They continue to get checked. They may go through a couple courses of chemo, but it's not um, how it used to be. HIV and AIDS is another one where it's now considered a manageable chronic condition, albeit serious. Yeah. So folks are living longer. Folks are able to live with chronic conditions longer. Um, more money is being spent in healthcare innovation. And yet the rate of amputations is rising. Why is that? Why is it that you can have somebody live with HIV or cancer for longer than ever possible. And yet as a country and actually worldwide, there are more amputations, preventable amputations than ever before. That's trending higher. Yeah. And so when we talk about a canary in the coal mine and healthcare in general, cause that's just wound care. You look at what is an area where um, the, the data is, is trending in another way where what seems to be a simple condition or something that is, is simple um, isn't tracking lower. Um, and so our company is really focused on looking at, like I said, wound care and skin care. Why is that so different? Um, but we also partner with other places in the industry where you see the same thing, where something that should be a, a survivable, overcomable um, condition um, is actually going in, in the other direction. So that's what we talk about. You know, that statistic alone, that more people are likely to lose a toe um, below the ankle amputation, below the knee amputation, which if you have an amputation, your mortality rate at that point is actually higher than if you have cancer. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I was alluding to. Yeah. And then like one thing that pops into my mind too, is like 
someone maybe has a manageable condition that for whatever reason it goes south, they get an amputation. Well, that just increases the cost of that individual's like level of care that they're going to have to receive now going forward, right? Like it puts an increased cost on the healthcare system and all of that. So why don't you talk a little bit about just kind of the cro- the cost of managing or mismanaging those chronic conditions that should be pretty, um, like you said, they should be pretty easy on the surface. They seem easy to handle, but it looks like we're not doing a good job of it. And it, it has big ramifications down the line, right? Right. Because as you said, one condition begets another. So if you look at somebody who um, has a, a, let's say a diabetic foot ulcer. So there's already, already the cost of them managing diabetes, which you're looking at prescription costs and um, you know, endocrinologists, primary care and, and things like that. And then all of the ancillary conditions that come along with that. So it's expensive on its own. But then when you throw in um, a, a diabetic foot ulcer, which gets uh, treated too late, which is a, a lot of the reason why there is this huge cost. Um, I think the last statistics from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid was just on the Medicare population. They're spending at least $28 billion a year managing just chronic wounds, just in their patients. Holy smokes, and, yeah. And that's, uh, and, and one statistic I saw was that's when it was the primary thing. So when it's diabetic foot ulcer as a secondary to another condition, like vascular insufficiency or, or something else going on, it may not even be counted in that number. And it's a really um, difficult number to measure, uh, partly because um, a lot of chronic wounds, people never actually go and get treatment for. And that's, that's kind of this bigger equitable access, like what's valuable in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so a diabetic foot ulcer, which then leads to um, you know, a, a, a partial toe amputation, which if not treated correctly, then leads to a, a full toe. At that point, then you have somebody who has um, some balance issues, mobility issues. There's the loss of work. There's the loss of, you know, uh, mobility and health and the decline there. Um, then you're potentially looking at a change in their circulatory system. So then you might have some like lower leg edema and then your special shoes. And then and it, it, it's kind of this snowball effect where, um, you know, some set of the population, they have that happen and all of a sudden they're empowered. Like they have this, like, this will be the last time it happens. It will be no more. What we find though, is sometimes it's a matter of like what physician is, is, is on the other side of it and how much hope they're giving them as opposed to the other side where there is um, unfortunately a uh, part of the population that says, Hey, people who are getting amputations, particularly if it's a result of diabetes, that's from lifestyle choices. And so you wouldn't have had this happen if you had made better choices. And, and so there isn't this necessarily hope given to the patient, which then leads to the cycle of all of these other, uh, these other things. I mean, if you get an amputation, you're way more likely to get another amputation. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you bring that up. I was talking to a few friends of mine the other day who are PAs and one of them works in, um, in nephrology and he was talking about diabetes mm-hmm. and he, you know, managing a patient, uh, just a difficult patient that he has. And he said, yeah, you know, they call it the disease of non-compliance. And it's like, yeah. well, if you have this, like that's the culture, or at least the idea in the healthcare field, like these clinicians are looking at these patients as it's something, and that there's personal responsibility, you know, let's get that out there. But like, when they're, when the message is you need to do a better job, <laughs> like it can't, it can't breed hope. Right. Right. So who can do something about that? 
who get who who decides that? Because they, what you pointed to isn't a isn't a isn't in the solution. So if we say we have a, a problem based on non-compliance, who can do something about that? You have physicians who say, I try education, social workers will give them education, and then the tech people, apps. We need apps, we need telehealth. You see all yeah. of this money flowing into telehealth, telemedicine, remote monitoring, and all of that. That's great. Um, but what might, might, and I will take the case and say is missing is products designed to meet patients at their, uh, acceptable level of compliance. So I just, I'm, I'm going to use an example from another industry. And it's because one of my, one of, one of the board members in, in my company is, is, you know, responsible for this in the consumer products industry. Um, and I'll keep the brand name out, but, um, once upon a time, it was a, it was a pain to mop your floor, right? You had to get a mop and, uh, you know, a a bucket of water and soap, and then all of your floor would be wet for a while and, and all of that. Um, and so you could say that people whose floors, their kitchen floors may have dog hair or were dirty, were non-compliant. They were not compliant (laughs) with, with using mops. However, the game changer in that wasn't a public health campaign. It wasn't an app to remind people every day. It wasn't people coming over and saying your bad lifestyle choices. It was, hey, what if we have disposable mop heads that are super cheap? You go buy already wet, already soaked up pads. You put it on, You it, your floor dries quickly. All of a sudden, you have a product that is so user-friendly, it induces compliance. And yeah. so when you talk about like, we can continue this conversation of like, who's to blame and all of that, but part of the solution is creating a solution that induces compliance. We see that in other areas of, of medicine as, as well. Yeah. Well, and it almost kind of gets to that aspect. I know you've talked about value and we talked about value a little bit earlier, like we'll get into it, but it almost kind of starts working into that level, right? Like subscription models in other places are valuable to the the to the user and that's why they're they're taking off and people buy it and they use it and um so you're almost kind of working into that like taking a value-based approach to healthcare from the patient's perspective right like this is actually going to be valuable to the patient because information about what they're doing or what they're not doing and the lifestyle changes they need to make doesn't really help them right like what helps them is something that meets them where they're at wherever they're they are on that road to to recovery and whole health so let's talk a little bit then about about that value like what's keeping us from doing that as an industry and specifically in healthcare like what's keeping that innovation from happening I'd say sometimes it's misaligned incentives and it's, it's incentives in payer medical policy or healthcare system policy, or, you know, uh, theory of, you know, value-based organizations or GPOs, like all of these different layers that are involved in the decisions around healthcare that yeah. we, we um, will pretend aren't practicing medicine and yet are the rules of the road and the bumpers saying we're not practicing medicine that we we still leave that for doctors as long as they're practicing medicine as in it gets paid for within these limitations and so um you have sometimes decisions that are made i think with um with good intentions 
Um, and I'll say that I, uh, despite my loud advocacy, I hold the payers um, close. You know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to, you know, folks who run large insurance companies because they're, they're not like the enemy either. You know, good innovation and value, real value, it holds value for all three key people in healthcare, the patient who's the recipient, but not ultimately like the customer, the physician who is the decider to some degree, and then whoever is, is paying the bill, whether that's CMS and Medicare and Medicaid or it's private insurance or some other version of that. So, um, but if you're incentivizing the uh, patient by simply like, you might feel better, maybe, maybe not, or you won't get in trouble or it won't get worse. So like there really isn't a lot of incentive for the patient other than like make the hurting stop, but only to the degree that I can manage it with the other things in my life. Like make the hurting stop to the amount that I can afford it or make the hurting stop to the amount that I can, I can actually take off of work to go to the doctor, you know, make the hurting stop to the level that like I understand and I feel safe. So that's their kind of incentive. And then you have the physician, which on the one hand is absolutely, I want to do the best I can for the patient. However, I can't lose money and go out of business because then I, I no want to do a treatment, <laughs> but it's not, there's no reimbursement or I'm getting paid. I am getting paid, which is where we're at right now. I'm getting paid when people stay sick. And I'm not saying that there are doctors who are keeping people sick, but like, you know, I, I, just because my world is wound care, um, I know that a lot of physicians, the bills are paid and the lights are on, um, in, in, which is smart business based on debridement. So a wound dressing change in some areas, like the actual, I'm just going to change the dressing, which needs to be done, isn't like fully reimbursed, but they are reimbursed if there's any, any debridement that happens. So you have kind of this incentive for them to keep cutting, even yeah. if maybe they don't need to, or, you know, other types where you have like super, really expensive therapies, which means that again, the doctor can then pay for other areas that are loss leaders. So you have those incentives. And then you have the payers. Their incentive is what is the best decisions we can make to keep this entire population healthy, which is based on statistics and most likely and and all all of that. And a lot of times they are slow to keep up with the value proposition of new technology because they spent a lot of time making some really good decision 15, 20 years ago based on some major clinical trial set that in stone and then like then it's never to be touched or revisited again until something major happens which is how wound care is at i mean most care medical policy looks exactly the same and it's based on clinical trials that came out about 20 years ago yeah well i think that's a good outline like your description of kind of the patient the doctor and the payer what they're going through is like a good description and a good visual for the fact that value is different depending on where you're at in the chain, right? Like what is valuable to the doctor is going to be different than what's valuable to the patient. What's valuable to the payer oftentimes is that that efficiency, that cost reduction, that keeping the most people healthy for the least amount of money, right? And it's very easy, like I'm a, a clinician as well. Like it's it's very easy to look at the payers and be like, well, those payers are what's wrong with healthcare because they're just cutting reimbursements. It's making us not you know, be able to see these people, yada, yada, yada. And they're not approving visits. And um, it's just a lot of that comes from the fact that we just don't understand or we're not putting ourselves in their feet when it comes to the, um, 
to the value proposition for them versus what is the value proposition for providers or for patients, right? Yeah, yeah, for for sure. Uh, because they um, they will say that they are protecting physicians and patients from like um, from potential ineffective innovation. And some of that is, you know, like being burned a couple of times by uh, being promised, like, this is the greatest innovation since, and, you know, and they, they will allow something, which then after watching it, it's like the outcomes are not what they measure. The outcomes aren't any better than, you know, the control group and standard of care, but you have, you know, skewed biostatistics and, and then they, and so then they get kind of gun shy about adopting innovation or they, you know, I, you see a lot of companies that are now more hesitant to embrace tech in certain areas because everybody spent all of this money updating, you know, we're going to fully integrate electronic medical records and all of the doctors are going to have apps. And then now you look at the efficiency of workflow and doctors, clinicians and nurses are spending more time like on this app and on this screen and all yeah. that than practicing medicine. And so they, it's kind of this pendulum swing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, <laughs> so when they went to EMRs, everyone was like, oh, it's going to be so much more efficient. <laughs> yeah. And it ends up well, not being efficient, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it, is it or isn't it? It kind of depends on the, the system you're in and how well integrated it is and, and, you know, all of that. I will say though, you know, like I said, I, I met with um, it, over the last quarter with two former like retired heads of um, like a chief medical officer from one of the larger payer systems. And I will say that they, they take personally any challenge that they don't care about patients. It's really about, and, and that, that I, you know, I've been somebody that I have, I've maybe spoken out of turn and treated them as like some big anonymous entity, because when I read what's allowed in payer medical policy, yeah. I read that anonymously and I'm like, how can you say that waiting, you know, for me, I get riled up because a lot of times um, chronic wound patients, they need to have on paper documented that they're not healing for 30 days. It's not enough for them to walk into an office and say, I've had a venous stasis ulcer for six months. There is like, well, we're going to go ahead and, and wait for another 30, 45, 60 days to make sure it's not going to heal. I'm like, if you go into a primary care and like, I've had sinus infection symptoms for a week. They're not like, you know what? We're going to write it down. Come back in a week. We want to yeah. make sure you're still sick, <laughs> right? I, I mean, but that's based on another meta-analysis and clinical trials and all of that. But from, from the payer perspective, it's, it's really about like, we are trying to make the best decision for 50 million lives. And so it's based upon statistics and folks come with us and, and, you know, are in pitching this and pitching that all of the time. It's that we want to move slowly and carefully to make the best decision possible because we know our decisions do affect 50 million lives. So I, um, it's, I'm not, I'm not taking them off the hook by any means, but it, 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 it in the same way that working with the FDA humanizes them, working with payers humanizes them. And sometimes I think the responsibility of those who feel like they're not being served correctly by the payer is to get better at communicating. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big piece that's, that's missed out of the conversation, right? Like it's easy to rail against any, any one of the, the players in healthcare policymakers or the payer or whatever, but unless you're in there advocating and working with them and actually doing the day-to-day -day, that it's, 
you're just always kind of talking about the big, the man behind the curtain almost, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned tech, you mentioned um, all this money that's recently been thrown at apps and remote patient monitoring and all of that kind of stuff. Like, and I'm, you know, I've even consulted for some, for some companies that are healthcare tech, you know, like startups, they're trying to get in there and, and they want to make a big impact in the, in the world for the patients that they're, that they're serving or the providers that they're providing a solution for. But um, I get the hint from what you're, from what you're saying that it's not, might not be money well spent or is it money well spent? We're just not utilizing it well. Like what's the, what's the big problem with all the money getting dumped into technology and telehealth and is it really valuable? Are we utilizing it correctly or not? And kind of just talk about that for a minute. I, I will say I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that telehealth, telemedicine, I'll, I'll stick with that, which is you know, the ability for a physician or a clinician to um, interact with the patient without the patient leaving the home. That is one of the greatest things that could happen to medicine. And unfortunately, it took COVID for yeah. it to really be fully embraced and tested out. But if you look at the amount of people who are still using that afterwards and the ability for patients who didn't have that beforehand. I mean, you look at the money in the VA and in, in oh, yeah. IHS and tribal health that is now being dedicated to ensure that rural communities who, you, I mean, they were looking at driving two hours just to get somebody beyond whoever the local primary care was. Like their ability to interact with a physician and a clinician is, is huge. That's, that's going to make a big difference. Um, my call out is, that needs to be paired with therapies that also work for a patient. Um, and so if you're only using telehealth in order to talk to people at home, um, but then that is resulting in saying, okay, we are sure that you now need to um, come into the office once a week, every week for five months, six months, or every day, or, you know, all of that, if we're not matching, and, and that's on my industry, you know, med device and pharma and all of that, if we're not matching it, then like, that's great. Like the telehealth needs to be paired with therapies. Um, it's interesting, one of the early ones that got moved to the home was sleep apnea. You know, once upon a time, sleep apnea and sleep studies happened in the center. And people would go in and, and sleep and get monitored and, and all of that. And this is, you know, I think it was 10 years ago that they really started adopting doing sleep studies at home. And at the first, it was like, well, you can't do that. It's not a controlled environment. But we trust patients to do very complicated things at home. I mean, for a long time, diabetics were doing their, you know, before you had pumps, they were doing injections. People do ostomy bag changes. They recover from major surgery at home. If we can trust them in all of these other areas of medicine to self-advocate and speak up, all of these other areas of telehealth need to come with product innovation. Yeah, that's that's really what I'm what I'm calling out is that it's it's only half the battle because if if you're looking at an area of medicine which could also be maybe moved at home but you're not, then you're just spying on patients. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it, right? My dad was talking to me about the other day about, um, so he's got an Apple, you know, one of the Apple watches or whatever, and his insurance company um, just sent him an email that says, oh, we noticed you have an Apple watch. Do you want to connect it to our system or whatever? And we can monitor you and, and help you improve your health or whatever. And he was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. Yeah. 
I, I get it. I have a Fitbit. And if they said like my Fitbit, I love it because it will say, um, we're concerned you haven't slept enough this month. <laughs> um, but like the last thing I want is my insurance company to know that about me. They would change me, my risk profile for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, we've talked about the tech, we've talked about the, the, the value kind of all of that kind of thing. So let's, let's talk then about those, like, that innovation, bringing it to those areas where, where there are those um, outcomes that are reversed or they're trending the wrong way that we would like to. Like, let's talk a little bit about how we do that. Do we do that over tiny incremental like improvements over the 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 paradigm that's there, or do we try to move more for those like those big game changer uh, technological or even pharmaceutical advancements? Even like. How, how do we best make change for those areas where the rest of, of the outcomes are trending upwards, but this one area is trending down? I um, come from a go big or go home. I mean, it, I, you know, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, we incremental changes are appropriate when we are looking to see what works at those kind of alpha beta tests. I come from tech, so of course I'm gonna say that. But when we're looking at what therapies hold weight and what the patient experiences, but when you look at other earlier areas that had kind of a revolution, it involved a big game changer. And sometimes the game changer, I mean, usually it's a it's a combination of, of a, a product, a drug, a device, and a change in the care pathway. So let's take smoking as an example. We had incremental improvements for a long time, but they weren't significant. They weren't a large majority. I mean, the science came out and people started understanding generations grew up and, and all of that. But you look at huge drops in the numbers. It came around the time that Zyban came to the market. Um, and also all of the smoking cessation programs became free and encouraged as opposed to like we changed from the environment of don't ever tell somebody that you are a smoker to please, I mean, you had have insurance companies and employee wellness programs and EMP or EAPs incentivizing people to self-disclose and then fully covered people were given pharmaceuticals and, you know, gum patches, all, all of these things. It was like, we're going to throw all of these resources at the problem. And from the insurance perspective, all of a sudden it became, it was the recognition of lung cancer is freaking expensive. Yeah. It is far cheaper for us to give away all of these things for free. I mean, if you disclose to an insurance company, I am a smoker and I want to quit, they will say, how much stuff can we send to you for your house? No copay. No, I mean, most of them, they will fully fund whatever it takes you to quit smoking. And so that, I mean, part of that was uh, you know, uh, uh, drugs and devices, but part of it was uh, uh, the, the desire, the medical policy change, the incentives change, um, and they kind of all had to come together at the same time. Yeah, so you're looking at kind of how do we align it for all of those, all of those people, right? The, again, those, those P's, right? The payer, the provider, and the patient, how do we make it all line up together? Yeah. Um, can that be done through like a, um, I'm, I'm, focus group is such a bad word, but like, let's say we've got something we want to bring to the market to improve these outcomes. Like what's the best way to do that? Do we have to tackle like each of these pillars, if you would, one by one, or 
Like, what have you seen work in that? Like, obviously the smoking one was huge. So like, how do we, how do we replicate that? Um, I can speak from my own company's experience, which is um, it's, it's uh, resisting the urge to polarize or demonize any major player in it. Uh-huh. Um, it is, it, it's not treating innovation in medicine like a team sport, like us versus them and being able to, willing to sit with people who, again, you may think that they have misaligned incentives, but before that, it's understanding really like what's going on and why are things the way that they are? It's, you know, kind of becoming an anthropologist in this area and really pulling the pieces and it can be nerdy work, but uh, payer medical policy actually is a great archive as to how a certain area of medicine got the way it did, because it's gonna it's gonna talk about hey, how did you know the elephant or the you know the the big guy, the giant in the room, which is CMS, you know how did they decide their coverage thing, which a lot of payers they will decide based on their population, like they decided that. And that comes with like, well, that was decided because they saw these studies in this study and they saw these statistics and that statistics. And this is how old it was. Like, this was the last time a meta analysis of, you know, or like a meta, you know, RCT was done. And so you can, you kind of have to look at all of those things um, for sure. And, um, and then of course, there's always a lot of value in sitting and talking with patients who are affected. And, it, and you can kind of pull apart their experience and start to see what's wrong by based on like what, what happened to them and, and treating those symptoms as clues, treating their experience as clues, whether you're looking at like a recurrence or a loss in some other area or like all the kind of quality of life things that are kind of tacked on at the end of like, oh, also how does the patient feel? Yeah. That's gold. Because true, you get to go back to what you're talking about, true value True value helps payers spend less, but help more people, helps physicians do better medicine because they want to and they see good outcomes, not because of some uh, dollar amount associated, and ultimately helps patients feel good about their treatment and their outcome. That's value when you're doing all three of them. Okay. Yes, that's wonderful. Um, Well, we're getting near the end here. I always ask this question. So if there's one or two main points that you want a listener to walk away from the show with, what would they be? Um, I think advocating for uh, your ability to use innovation in your own medicine, like from a patient. Um, I do think too, that there's a lot of uh, interesting places where people can start making their own decisions and are covered. Um, But really it's about continuing to advocate, learn, get information. I mean, again, payers are not as hard to reach as, as need be, um, but that's secondary. When it comes to my world, which is the world of healthcare innovation, it's continuing to challenge. Um, I, the changes come because people say, all right, enough is enough. Enough is enough. We, we need to move forward and, and, and do better in this area. Um, it's great that a lot of dollars being spent are being spent in healthcare and innovation, that's great. I mean, we all want cool apps on our phone, but it, if that money in tech and all that can be spent in helping us be healthy for longer. Um, so I think the demand for innovation in home health care, not home health, but health care that allows us to stay healthy at home, yeah. continuing to say, that's what we need. That's what we need. That's what we need. We've done that in so many other areas. 
I can get chicken wings at 2 a.m. delivered to my yeah. house. I didn't even ask for that. Yeah. Right. But like chemotherapy is now a pill because of advocacy. That is huge. Yeah. And so people saying, you know what, dollars in the market and my insurance money and wherever my you know investments are going, keep me healthy at my house. That is huge. That that's that's what, where I would hope people would continue to aim for. Like, yep, I I want I I want to know that the tools that have been um, developed to make my life great in all of these areas that absolutely they're also being applied in medicine. Yeah, awesome. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, before we get out of here, where can people find out more about you, about your work, about Omeza, any of that? Just all the all the places where people can find you. <laughs> so you can always find me on LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn slash Sarah Kitlowski. That's uh, a great last name, yeah. um, but I'm sure you can find it in the in the show notes. Um, my company is Omeza, O-M-E-Z-A. You can find us at omeza.com or if you're a physician and want to learn more, um, we're at omezapro.com. Um, those are really the best places to find me and my company. You can find me on, on YouTube too, of course. Um, but I, I would encourage people to reach out to me and you can always email me directly, sarah at omeza.com. Um, and if you want to talk about innovation in healthcare or um, wound care, biofilm, I love talking about that kind of stuff too. Awesome. Well, thanks, Sarah. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah Kitlowski about innovation in healthcare, about wound care, about just aligning all of the incentives, right? Or all of the value pieces in healthcare. Particularly in the US, we've got, you know, four stakeholders at any given time. You've got we call them the four P's of healthcare, right? You got the payer, the provider, the patient, and the policymaker. I was recently consulting with a, a company coming out of the UK, and they're trying to to make a entrance into the U.S. healthcare market, and they come from a totally different standpoint, right? They've got a single payer system for the most part. Their policymaker and their payer tend to be the same person <laughs> a lot of times. Um, so getting their heads around like, no, listen, we've got four different stakeholders that we're trying to speak to and the way you approach each of them needs to be different because they're each valuing something different in that equation. You know, one is, is more worried about long-term outcomes. Um, one is worried about cost. You know, the patient ultimately is worried about whether or not this is going to solve my problem or not. So it's, it's always an interesting dynamic when you're talking about bringing a new product to the market, especially in healthcare, or you know, trying an innovative approach to treatment because you're, you're not just dealing with the, the A and B, like the patient and the provider, but there are these other stakeholders in the mix that need to be satisfied as well. In fact, um, coming up in a few episodes, I'm going to have... Ron Baker and Ed Kless from the Soul of Enterprise podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with any of their work, but they Ron has written a couple books on value pricing, on how to, to move away from a fee-for-service model to sort of a fixed rate or a, a, a rate that is based off the value or the outcomes that are going to be provided. Um, now, he's an accountant. He's not in the healthcare field, but the the idea translates very well, and we're going to be talking a lot about 
the third-party payer system, kind of the, the misaligned incentives when other stakeholders get involved and what clinicians and healthcare organizations can do and are doing in the space to kind of remove some of those constraints and make healthcare more, again, about the relationship between the, the patient and the provider or the organization. So look forward to seeing that in a few episodes. If you like the show, um, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating interview. It helps people find us, um, and it means a lot. I like seeing them reviews when they come across. Or if you have questions, shoot us an email at support at rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's support at rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com. Um, any questions or suggestions for another episode or maybe even a guest you've got that you want us to, to have on the show, um, that would be great. And if you are a healthcare administrator, a clinic owner, someone that's up in the echelons of a healthcare organization, and you're looking for a way to really make healthcare more human, to remove some of those abstractions and barriers that prevent um, a real meaningful relationship being formed between the organization or your providers and the patients that are being seen in your facilities, um, then I'd encourage you to head on over to the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint and learn a little bit about what we do at Rehab U Practice Solutions and how we can help your organization really return the focus of healthcare to where it should be, and that is ultimately the people, the people that both run our organizations and work in our organizations, as well as the people whom we serve. Um, and you can find out more about that by heading on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com slash U-P-E. That's rehabupracticesolutions.com slash U-P-E. That's all I've got this week. Until next time, everyone, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.